Okay, last week we started on the study of the Gospels, and we was going to use, and we'll use in the future, the uh, chronology Bible where we put them all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, and put them all together, but we're doing some things before then. Of all the studies that we can have, there's none, so far as the Christian is, is concerned, that's more important than a study of the harmony of the Gospels, that in the way you determine historical truth, if you can actually prove that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have four separate individual accounts uh, with each writing on his own initiative. And then you can also prove that those accounts complement and supplement one another in such a way that they do not contradict. And not only do they complement and supplement one another, but they also complement all available historical facts outside the Gospels and they complement other information, such as material from the Old Testament. If you can actually prove that in the process, you prove the truthfulness of, of the information in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But on the other hand, you have to be able to prove that in order to prove the truthfulness. In other words, that you just simply have a story there until you can deal with that. Uh, for years, skeptics uh, argued uh, against the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in various ways. One way was simply to say that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and part of what we call the synoptic problem, that you really had just one account with two people copying that one account and then just adding commentary and also embellishing it somewhat with uh, evolved stories over the years. And so in the process, your witness became just simply uh, one witness. Over a period of time, this argument was beaten down uh, to the point that now, even though that uh, you can see some same sources involved in the materials, that you can definitely establish Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. There's never been a question about John so far as it being a separate account. But you can establish them as four separate accounts. So then the next way that the skeptic came at it was to try and say, well, yes, you've got four accounts, and that's just it. Let's look at all the contradictions between them. And so the next step was to show <clears throat> that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have contradictions. That whenever they deal with the same event, there are contradictions in the material. And this is evidence of how that it evolved and was carried down. And really, you do not have any certain body of truth that you can be absolutely concrete about. And so they've come at this from both sides in order to take away from the truthfulness of the information itself. Now, when you read materials dealing with the uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or any, any of the books of the Bible, um, unless you're going to go to the trouble to read more than just a few sources, you honestly, in, in some ways, are better off reading none, uh, unless that you just happen to get whoever would do the best job at first. It's like uh, reading the newspaper. Here in Chattanooga, we have a the Times and the News Free Press. The Times is liberal in its handling of the news and has an editor that has the is of the liberal persuasion. The News Free Press has a very conservative editor. And if you lay those newspapers side by side, it's very interesting how that they can each look at the same event and see it entirely differently. Each person look at the same event and see it entirely differently. Uh, you'll read from the a uh, conservative paper, for example, constant criticism of the newscast that you get over the uh, 
uh, NBC, CBS, and, and ABC, and, and how biased it is. And you can read from others that will be very complimentary of those newscasts. So you deal with the same information. Uh, how many times have you heard the president give a speech? And then when the commentators get hold of it, two different commentators interpret certain statements in completely different ways. Remember the presidential debates where uh, the people that were for Bush were overly pleased with what he would say when he debated, and the people that were for Dukakis were also pleased. And so each heard the same debate, each walked off saying that their man had come out on top in that particular debate. So obviously that when you evaluate information and when you try to get down to what actually happened on any instance, that biases are there. And biases, no matter who have them, they can get in the way of the truth. And when it comes to the Bible, although from our background, we want to think of the liberal as the individual that is in the way of the truth, and that the conservatives is the one that really loves truth. But yet you can go back through the centuries and you can show that, that that's not quite accurate. That sometimes tremendous damage has been done to, to Christianity by people that were considered very conservative. Uh, for example, at least in my personal opinion, there are some very conservative fundamentalist churches who claim to believe every word of the Bible is inspired that in their theology are doing a lot of harm to Christianity and some of the things that they're teaching yet they're very conservative. On the other hand, somebody who is a liberal may point out some things that might be very enlightening to come to, coming to understand something. On the other hand, that liberal might make some observations that are not based in fact that a conservative would nail him on. So I'm saying that to get it all, I think you need to read from both the liberals and the conservatives. Uh, just like maybe in politics, sometimes you've got to listen to both of them to try to figure out exactly what the truth is. And then, though, if a person will take the time to evaluate the sources and to look at the Bible, it's really not that complicated. It's just simply a matter of taking the time to do it. And, and there is time involved in, in investigating. It's just like sort of the, with understanding the difference in the various translations. It's not that complicated a thing if a person is willing to take the time to actually study and investigate the material. And so the kind of material that we're, we're studying and some of the things we're going into are generally not gone into in a regular service like on Sunday and whatnot. And by the way, a sermon is not the best way to go into this drill. It's not the place for it. But uh, you can't cover it in a few minutes. It requires a, a lot of deep thought, and then you can uh, have one lesson where you produce more confusion than satisfaction before you finally get the time to, to tie it all together. But if a person will stick with it, the end result is that you have a much better understanding of, of what's going on. It's sort of like a, a comparing maybe an electronic technician with electronic, uh, with the material that an electronic engineer would deal with. It's much simpler from the technician standpoint. And, and, and if you sit in a class uh, as a technician where they was getting into a lot of these theories, you might even think, well, don't bother me with that, you know, just give me my tools and let me, let me go at it. But in reality, if you had that approach, you would top out at a certain level and you never would gain the understanding of what's going on that the person has who has studied the, the theories behind all the various things that you're working with here. And in the same way, I'm saying that, that if you take the time to study the Bible in this way, you're going to wind up with a far richer understanding, a more accurate understanding, 
and be more apt, more able to do some good things for God and, and not represent, misrepresent some of the things that he's left for us. Now, last week we noted that the first thing is that when we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, we obviously see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very close. And John sits over here by himself. And uh, so much so that John has been called the Maverick Gospel. And so these three are called the Synoptic because they have so much material in common. John sits over here by himself. And before we're through with this, I'll give you some runoffs of parallel uh, quotations and all where you can see the similarity between the three and then also how John sits by himself. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with the ministry of Jesus primarily in, in Galilee. You never even get the idea that, they go to, that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Only one time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke does Jesus go to Jerusalem, and that's at the very end when he goes there and crucified. That's it, period. In John, you have to scratch to find him doing anything in Galilee. That in John, all of the teaching and discourse, for the most part, is in and around Jerusalem. And you have Jesus going to three different Passovers, and a lot of things taking place uh, in, in those various Passovers. We find a whole lot of material that is totally unique to John, that is not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they said as, as, uh, as almost two different sources. Well, if we can get something that is so different to coincide then you've really accomplished something when it comes to evaluating truth. For example, uh, the Jesus of John never tells a parable. The Jesus of, of John only has two miracles that are in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. Uh, the Jesus of John gets into long theological discussions that are just simply not in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John is a much deeper theological book than Matthew, Mark, and Luke is. And so if we can take something that, that is so different and coincide it. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have material that, that, is, that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then we have material that is in Matthew and Mark, but not in Luke. And we have material that's in Mark and Luke, but not in Matthew. Now, Mark is has been regarded by some scholars as the primary of the three. The reason is we find so much material that's in Mark and Matthew, but not in Luke, in Mark and Luke, and not in Matthew, and then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we find Mark throughout the three of them are with one or the other. And so some scholars in, in recent years have have come to think of Mark as the primary source, the one that was written first, and the other two looking at and, and dealing with some things in, in Mark. And so it was called, and even to the point that some believe that Mark was copied from by Matthew and Luke. Well, then you have problems there, maybe, because why would Matthew, an apostle and eyewitness, copy from Mark, not an apostle, nor, or an eyewitness? You see, so... Uh, that we have, you would think of anything, Matthew would be the primary one. With that being the case, though, that we've learned some more with a lot of the manuscripts that have been uh, uncovered in, in over the years through, through archaeology, now scholars can do a, a pretty good job of saying that, hey, we, we maybe have been wrong here. That uh, 
there is a document that they call the Q document. Now that's just a number they put on it, Q document. And you can actually go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you can see that, that both Matthew, Mark, and Luke are copying from a same source uh, for certain parts of the material. That we have certain parts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are word for word exactly the same. Well, you, you just don't have that unless they're copying from the same source. And not only that, but this particular document that they call Q document, when we go back to the writings of the early church fathers and their quotations, they quote materials in such a way that uh, does not coincide sometimes with either Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but coincides with, a, with this document. In other words, that there is a definitely material separate apart from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that is circulating and being quoted from and copied by the early church fathers uh, separate apart from this here. Now, if, if we can pull all of this material together that they, that they quoted and copied, <clears throat> and the material that was not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then we can pull what we've got here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we can see that, hey, that there is material unique to Matthew that's not in Mark and Luke. There is material unique to Luke that's not in Mark and Matthew. And there's material unique to Mark. And so that if that's the case, then what we have is three individual writers putting together material, some of it eyewitness, some of it from documents that are going around, some of it from the oral tradition, and they're evaluating that information. But in the process of showing uniqueness to each of those three, you can see that although they were dependent upon the same, some of the same sources, that you also have three totally separate and independent documents. And of course, John is, is, is no problem. Well then, if we can come along and show even that the early church fathers were quoting things that really are not in contradiction with this, but yet worded in a consistently different way, and what I mean by a consistently different way, worded differently, but let's say Ignatius and Polycarp and someone else might quote something that sounds exactly what you read in Matthew, except it's not worded the way Matthew does it, but, but Ignatius and Polycarp and such and such all quote exactly the same thing. Well, then obviously there's a, another document floating around there <coughs> with those same teachings. But the point is, if we can pull all of this together and show how it complements and harmonizes and does not contradict, and even show that the apparent contradictions are outstanding because they show the individuality of the material now, the end result of all your study is to prove beyond any doubt, I mean absolutely 100%, that you're dealing with truth. That you just simply cannot have as many sources as we're dealing with and as many personalities involved in this and have this thing coincide in a way, in a perfectly harmonious way, unless you're dealing with truth itself. Now, one of the things that we noted uh, last week was that uh, in the, among the ancients, they didn't have even a quotation marks like we do. There was no quotation marks, they didn't know it. And, and when they quoted somebody, they didn't feel obligated to quote them word for word. They quoted the, the essence of the meaning itself. And the knowledge of this is going to help explain why that uh, sometimes when you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and that same sermon in Luke, that you definitely have different wording in that, in that process. Another custom of the ancients 
when the ancients uh, told history, they would actually put discourses in the mouth of, of the character that was uttering the discourse that maybe he never gave it exactly that way. In other words, as a characteristic of writing, in Matthew, for example, there are five large discourses of Jesus. But then those five large discourses of Jesus are not that way in Luke. In Luke, that material is strung out and given in a gradual way. Well, what seems to have happened, and of course it's not impossible that Jesus gave those five large discourses in, in, exactly, in exactly that way. But when we examine things, the chronology of Luke is better uh, than Matthew. Matthew seems to make no effort whatsoever to put things in chronological order or other than having a birth and, and his crucifixion. But it was a custom of the writers that say a particular philosopher like uh, Socrates over a period of days had given a lot of teachings uh, and you had asked him questions and he answered that and he gave a lot of, a lot of, a lot of answers to it. And then you're going to sit down as a historian and record that. Well, you might take material that uh, Socrates had given over a period of days in short statements and answering questions and just compile it and make one discourse. Or you might take material that, that he's given on different subjects over these various days and you pull all that he says on one subject together and all that he says on another and you've got him giving a discourse on that subject when really maybe that's not the way that it was. All right? For the ancients, this is not being dishonest or tampering with anything. This is just simply the way they recorded history, and it was no problem to them. And part of the problem that, that some have with the, with the Bible, with the uh, New Testament and also the Old Testament, is that we go back to material that was completed 2,000 years ago and completed in keeping with the standards and the customs of those people and written in the way that they write and information put down in the way that they put it down. And then we have tried to come up and, and judge it by criteria that we use today. In other words, uh, today if I was writing history and I, get, and I had Ronald Reagan coming forth with a speech that in reality he gave in short statements over a period of a couple of years, that would be considered not honorable that you say, well, he, did, he never said it that way. And, and we, we just wouldn't do that kind of thing. You, you just don't do it and according to our, you, our understanding of what it is to record accurate history. But that was not the custom in Matthew's day. They found no problem. All they wanted to get across was the truth and, and a body of information. And they were more concerned about meaning than they were individual words. Now, that's hard to understand for fundamentalist Christians who get so lost in individual words that they forget about meaning. That, uh, that our big thing is, is, does, is everything literally word for word. That's, that's a bigger thing with the, the fundamentalist concept than whatever the meaning may be involved. But this was not the case with the ancient historians. And we're going to see when we get into this, this is definitely not the case with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're concerned with getting across a, a meaning to you. And so when Matthew records Jesus, give it a sermon where he lumps all a group of parables together that Luke strings throughout his account on different occasions. Or he lumps some miracles together that happen strung out over a period of time. Matthew is doing just exactly what would be in keeping with the custom of that day as, as he as an individual writer sets down, uh, thinks about his audience and what he wants to do with that material. And in the same way, Luke has something that he wants to do with his material. And just like if you sit down and wrote a paper on something, 
you would have something you wanted to do with that information, something you want to convince the other of, and you're going to put it down in the way that is best for getting across your point. Okay? Luke now writes to Theopolis, who's not a Jew, who, who wasn't involved in those events, and he wants him to know the certainty of those things that happened and all. And Matthew is writing to Jews who are very familiar with the various things that happened and all. Their problem is the interpretation. Well, Matthew is very concerned with interpretation. He's very concerned with not being misunderstood. And so he wants to handle this in such a way, and, and there's going to be some interpretation and all that, that goes with it. Later on, we're going to see that John is very concerned with just the, the deep theology and the purpose behind the entire thing. All right, now, what we're going to notice tonight is some specific examples. We're going to read uh, some material where the same event is recorded in two or three of the Gospels and note the different wording and how that the writers obviously were concerned about getting a meaning across. We're going to see the meaning is exactly the same. But one will add things that another one leaves out. And sometimes they'll say it in a different way. Not only that, but in recording something, one, what one has down here, another one may have up there. In other words, obviously, there was no effort made to put it in exactly the chronological way that Jesus may have said it. The whole point was to get this across. All right, now keep in mind also that before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put anything down on paper in the, in the way that we've got it now, all of this is circulating orally within the church. All of it. It first goes out orally. The message goes out orally. And the early church had the Holy Spirit giving them the gift of prophecy, the, the gift of wisdom, the gift of discernment and all. In fact, when we read comments from the early church fathers, uh, they don't regard with the same kind of respect what's on paper as what is coming orally. Because the, the, what is coming orally, they're looking at it as something that's directly from the Spirit. And, and nobody has copied anything that wrong or, or anything like that. And so with the early church in those formative years, we have to keep in mind that all this information was orally, and they had those various gifts of the Holy Spirit and all. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are going to put this, put this down, and it's going to go on beyond that. But as this information circled orally, the same, the same stories were given in different ways. In other words, the different details may have been dropped. Is if you and I tell a story that we've heard, uh, one of us may streamline it. Okay, one of us may get every single solitary word. One of us may leave out one thing and another one another thing, depending on what point that you're trying to get across uh, in in telling the story. And you're going to see this. And I think also one of the things that it'll do for you, as you begin to see it, is to make you realize how important it is to study the Bible for meaning. And, and this business of, of being a legalist and getting lost in individual jots and tittles and words and everything like that is missing the point completely because the writers were <coughs> writing to get across a meaning and I think it'll make us concentrate on the total picture that's there. And when we do that, we'll see that we don't have any contradiction and that all the other things actually supplement in such a way that they could not unless you were dealing with truth itself. Now, for the first example, we're over to, uh, let's see, let's get uh, the Bibles going in several different directions. Okay. Put that thing on. Tell her to take out the book when she's finished. Uh, let's see, uh, Barbara, who, uh, okay, if y'all got one or two Bibles, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
through the mark. You all turn to Matthew 19, 13 through 15. And then Nancy, Joe, and uh, Jack, Mark 10, 13 through 16. And then uh, uh, Louise and Hugh, Luke 18, 15 through 17. Okay, we're dealing with exactly the, the same thing here. Notice the different ways it's approached. Okay, uh, Barbara, you want to read that uh, Matthew 19, 13 through 15? And you all, while she's reading that, those of you that are looking on in Mark and Luke, you look at yours and the difference in, in her account. And it's Mark. Uh, You're reading Matthew 19, 13 through 15. But Mark's one. No, I'll give that to you. Mark, Mark 10, 13 through 16. And Luke 18, 15 through 17. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Okay, now let's look at Mark's account. Uh, let's see, have you got Mark? Or, okay. <clears throat> People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Okay, and it doesn't say laying his hands upon them? Uh, it says, put his hands on them and... Blessed him. Stops right yeah, there. Okay. Him. All right. Uh, then Luke's account. Let's get uh, Louise. People were along bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of, he the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Okay, now, notice how one account said that he brought them that he might lay his hands on them and pray. That's Matthew. And Mark, that he might touch them. Luke, the same thing, you know, that, that he might, might touch them. Then uh, you have the statement of the disciples rebuked the people, and Jesus said, but then, in, that's in Matthew's, but in Mark it records, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them. And then, again, that's not in Luke. In other words, the, sta the statement that he, when he saw it, he was indignant. It's just in Mark, neither Matthew or Luke record that. Then, notice as you put the accounts together, that Mark is the wordiest on that. He gives more details, much more details. It's been streamlined in Matthew and streamlined in Luke. Well... Remember also what was said, that Mark, in the first century, was referred to as the gospel according to Peter. The preaching of Peter is recorded by Mark. Mark bears record of eyewitness uh, testimony all the way through. But see, Matthew's an eyewitness, but we, we notice a, a difference between Matthew and Mark. Mark is more apt to record the details and more details than Matthew is. Of the three, Matthew is the most general. Uh, Matthew is concerned with the general principle, and he's less given to specifics and details than Mark is. Okay, now, uh, 
come on down to, let's see, uh, the same, we'll start in the same grouping, Matthew 22, 23 through 33, that'd be uh, the, the same ones that had Matthew before, and then I'll mark, Mark 12, 18 through 27, and Luke uh, 20, 27 through 40. You know, that's interesting, too, where it could have been that, was it Mark that recorded that? Yeah. It could have been that he was just close enough to perceive that, that he was a little bit aggravated, a little bit, a little bit angry by that, where the others maybe just heard him say that, but really wasn't close enough or didn't, didn't perceive that he was... All right, wouldn't as big a thing. Yeah. In other words, whatever happens, nobody's going to record every last little detail. Nobody is. Can you imagine how long it would take? So everybody is streamlining. Anytime there's an event that happens and there's a discussion, Everybody that writes is streamlining. I mean, you couldn't carry the Bible around or any history book if that wasn't the case. So what you decide to leave out becomes a matter of choice. And then, like you said, there's, you perceive different. Uh, uh, you, somebody might very definitely perceive that aggravation or the fact that he was indignant and somebody else not even notice that or it not even be a big thing to him. If you get a speech at Swiss or a church or something, somebody, two or three people were writing about it, they could... But what, what you see on just that little bit there, obviously the Holy Spirit did not dictate every single word that Matthew wrote and Mark wrote and Luke wrote, or for it seems kind of strange that he would dictate different words for three. But the meaning is the same, and they complement. And, and what you have there is a strengthening of all three. The fact that you've got a certain vocabulary, a certain personality in each one. By the way, Mark tends to be harsher and to the point. But think about Peter. Wasn't that the way Peter was? Right, right to the point, and very, very, very bold. And so you're you're going to have those differences. But the fact that you can have that now, what if you had read that, and each one of them was word for word exactly the same? Either you would say that one of them wrote, and the other two copied, or they all three copied off somebody, and you really wouldn't have three sources. But when you've got three sources that actually show their different personalities, and each include things that the other does not, and each leaves out things, and yet, when you take what is included in Mark that's not in Matthew, it doesn't contradict it, it fits right in it. And what's in Luke that's not in either in the other, it just fits right in. You just simply couldn't have that unless you're dealing with information that is truthful. Okay, let's look at, uh, let's see, Steve, read that in uh, Matthew. While he's reading this in Matthew, those of you that are Mark and Luke, look at what you've got. That same time the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told, it, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the, of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, now go ahead with uh, 
Mark. Oh, what was that, 18 through? Uh -huh. 18. Yeah, 12, 18 through 27. Okay, now you realize I'm reading this out of the only the Bible that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then come unto him, because I left my other Bible in Nashville. <laughs> so I can find that. Uh, then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother dies and leave his wife behind him and leave no children that his brother should take his wife and raise up the seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren and the first took a wife and dying left no seed and the second took her and died neither left he any seed and the third likewise and the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all the woman died also in the resurrection therefore when when they shall rise, it's no wonder it's hard to read this thing. Whose wife shall she be to them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as angels which are in heaven. One more. Okay, yeah, two more. Two more. And as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake to, unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Okay. Now, notice the difference there with, um, with Matthew. In Matthew it says, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children. This one said that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take up the wife and raise. Obviously, each are saying the same thing, but they're saying it in a, in a completely different way. Again, as you look at the total context, you find that a few more details are in Mark than in Matthew. And he's actually the wordy, wordier of the two there. Now, uh, let's see, uh, on Luke, let's see, uh, you got Luke, uh, Jack? No. Yeah. Oh. Okay, you? I've got it, I've got it. Oh, okay. Start on this, because I'm going to start at a place where it's not an evil on the other. In verse 34, verse 34, and then finish on out through uh, 40. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in, this, in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the, showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the, God of the dead, but of the living, for to him are all alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, now notice in 34 how that she starts off with something that's not in Matthew and Mark, and that way it says, there's no parallel to this. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection of the dead 
Then we get down. Neither married or given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. And again, for they cannot die anymore. That's unique to Luke. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those that are counted worthy to attain, that is unique to Luke itself. And then he goes ahead, and again, the similarity that is such that you get exactly the same meaning, but obviously, now we can look at this a lot closer, we're not doing it, because if, if we was all looking exactly the same thing, it would be easier. But I could show you that there's difference in the syntax, there's different vocabulary being used, and then you have these differences in detail, but yet obviously they're dealing with exactly the same thing, there's no contradiction at all, and yet each one supplements the other in a way. Well again, you can't have this unless you're dealing with something that, in other words, obviously no one is sitting down and just copying off the other. And see, when you're recording something, or if you're dealing with something where you're dealing with truth, it's like, that. say we were going to a deposition, and this lawyer is going to ask Mark and myself, Hugh, and Hugh questions on a particular event. And uh, if we were telling the truth, and we were not going to lie or anything like that, and we weren't worried about anything, there'd be no need for us to get together and get our stories together or anything like that. When we got there, I might say a few different things than either one of you, and you might say a few different things to me, and we might handle it a different way, but we're not going to contradict. We're going to supplement and complement one another. But now, if we are involved in something that uh, we're, not, we're not telling the truth, what are we going to do? Are we going to even take the chance of going to a deposition like that? We're not. There's absolutely no way that if we're involved in a lie, what are we going to do? The three of us are going to get together, and we're going to get our story straight, and we're going to make sure that we all say exactly the same thing. We're all, all going to do it. But if the lawyer was sharp, if they're really sharp, and if you're concerned about truth, if we say everything exactly the same way, and, and we don't, you know, just everything is coming same, then obviously we've got together. Well, again, this is something that judges and lawyers look for when they're evaluating testimony itself. Obviously, when Matthew sends his gospel out, he's not worried about who it's going to be compared with. He doesn't feel obligated. Let's say that he knows that Mark is already out there being circulated. He feels no obligation to copy Mark word for word. Mark feels no obligation. Luke does. Nobody feels the obligation to just grab somebody and copy them word for word. They seem very confident of the material itself, and it doesn't bother them that they bring in a few different things or add. Nobody's attempting uh, to do anything to deceive anybody. So these kinds of things are all marks of truth that, that we would note in any kind of testimony. And if we was going before a judge with, on some basis, uh, something that's being investigated, those kinds of things are absolutely essential if what you're going to say is going to be believable uh, to the people that are listening. Okay, now, let's see. Let me skip on over to another one. Come over to, uh, uh, let's see, Matthew, those of you that had Matthew, Matthew 24, 15 through 18, and uh, Luke 21, 20 through 22. Now, all of this material deals with the end of the age. And, and they have paralleled where they're dealing with exactly the same parts of the end of the age. Okay, now, those of you looking at Mark, look at that, 13, 14 through 16. And those of you looking at Luke, look at that, 21, 20 through 22. 
and then Matthew 24, 15-18 because we're at the parallel part. Okay, now, let's see. Uh, in uh, Matthew, Sandy, you want to read that 24, 15-18? Therefore, when you see the abomination and desolation which, is, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let he who is in the house top not go down to get the things out that are in the house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babies in those days. Okay, now, Mark, uh, who's got, uh, let's see, who's the first one has Mark? Okay. Mark 13. Mark 13. Uh, 14 through 16. Okay. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. <clears throat> Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be days of distress unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equal again. Okay, now listen to Luke. The, those of you on Matthew and Mark, look at yours carefully and then notice the one on Luke. Who's got Luke? Uh, I've got it. Okay. A 20. 21, uh, 20 through 22. Okay. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in, in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment in, in fulfillment of all that has been written. Okay, now, look at the starting of it in Luke, the, very, the first couple of verses. Notice that first of all, the one that, that, that Matthew and Mark say the same thing, but only Matthew identifies it as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel. Well, remember that Matthew's gospel is written to primarily to convince the Jew that Jesus was the Messiah, and all the way through Matthew you have this happened to fulfill what the prophet said, this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. And so to Matthew, this is a real big thing, that Daniel had prophesied this. All right, Mark doesn't even put that in. He's got the same thing, but he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't even incorporate that, that Daniel has prophesied this. But then look at Luke. He's, with Luke, you can't miss what's going on. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that his desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. Do not let those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that's written. All right, now, Matthew doesn't need in the 24th chapter to mention Jerusalem. Where has he mentioned it? He's already got it in the 23rd chapter. But part of the problem here is the people who study this, this material start at Matthew, the 24th chapter, the first verse, when in the 23rd chapter is where Matthew introduces this and lets you know that it's Jerusalem that he's talking about and all, and then he goes into this. All right, now, Luke is very specific through here. And he hasn't introduced this. 
in the same way that Matthew has. And so right here at the very beginning, he tells you about Jerusalem and uses it in just that plain way. But notice he doesn't mention Daniel. So all of them say in a little different way here, they all incorporate information. When we put all the information together, what we see is all of it's true. And the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I can see, and the differences in their personality and who they was writing to. And, and the point they was trying to vote again, what do we have? Could you have this kind of thing if Jesus had never given this speech? See, I, you, I, don't, I don't know how you can have it. And, and obviously, when Matthew writes or puts his material together, he feels no obligation whatsoever to make sure that uh, that he's saying exactly what Mark said, or, or Luke sure feels no obligation. He tells Luke tells you at the beginning. He's, he's a researcher, and he's contacted the other eyewitnesses. He's read the other materials, but he feels no obligation. Uh, the fact that, that he puts some things in here that's not in Matthew and Mark doesn't bother him a bit. So obviously, that although we're dealing with the same thing, and they supplement, each give us important information, each person is writing an individual document. Now, let's see, on the same... Uh, text. Uh, I'll skip on that right now. Come over to, um, let's see, uh, Matthew 26, Matthew 26, and verse 39, those of you that had Matthew. All right, Mark, do Mark 14, 35 and 36. And Luke, do Luke 22, 41 through 42. Now notice the difference here in recording the prayer of Jesus. Okay, in Matthew, uh, Barbara, you want to read that? 26, 39. Okay. Uh, 39? Yeah, 30, verse 39. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Okay, now Luke. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Okay, now look at the, in Luke, he says, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed. Mark says, Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Matthew records, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Okay? Again, there's no contradiction there. But again, you can see the individuality of the three accounts, that nobody's copying off anybody else. In fact, one of them says knelt down, the other one says fell down, and the other one says fell on his face. Uh, so you can see how that, uh, that they've each worded it, and same with several other points there. No, no effort whatsoever of uh, anybody to copy or anything. They're doing their own thing, and yet they perfectly coincide. All right, now come on down to, let's see, do Matthew 27, those of you with the Matthew, 27, 33, and 34. Uh, Mark 15, 22 and 23, and Luke 23, 33. 33 and 34. Okay, now who's, who's the next one on Matthew? 
Okay, the four. Okay. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Okay, now Mark. Uh, it's 22, wasn't it? Yeah, 22 and 23. Yeah. And they bring him into a place, Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of the skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, and but he received it not. Okay, now another one with Luke. Wait a minute, what's, uh, what's the myrrh? Is that the same thing? As... Yeah, well, it's said different. That's the same thing. One of them got wine same. mingled with myrrh, and the other's got wine mingled with gall. So gall is the same thing as myrrh. Yeah. Okay, uh, the next, now who's got Luke? Okay. Okay. When they came to the place called the school, there they crucified him, crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Okay, now notice again how brief that Luke was. He just, when they come to the place which is called the skull, there they crucified him, period. Obviously, they're recording exactly the same thing, you can fit them in. Nobody's copying off anybody else. Each again is using his own vocabulary and his own personality. Now, let's see. Uh, now those are... Okay, here's good. In Matthew, Matthew 8, 16, Mark 1, 32, and Luke 4, 40. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Okay, now look at Luke. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kind of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Okay, notice again, dealing with exactly the same thing. Each one of them words it in a different way. Luke puts several things here that are not in Mark and Matthew. Mark's a little bit wordier than Matthew is on that on that particular instance. Okay, now let's see. Uh, now, are, people are, what you're trying to get across is the people are actually coming up and saying that these are discrepancies and pure D contradictions and it's causing... Well, we haven't got to the real discrepancies yet. <laughs> We're going to do that tonight. What I'm showing on this yeah. is even the part where we acknowledge that there's no discrepancy or anything like that, that you definitely have independent writers. Yeah. That they're, they're saying they're using different words, different vocabulary, different syntax. But if we, after we get finished now, we won't do it tonight, we'll show that, that not only are they different, but each is consistent. In other words, Matthew is consistently more a person that deals with the generalities. As a poet, Mark is consistently more specific than Matthew, more given to the details. 
Matthew is consistently more given to noting the prophet and its fulfillment. Luke is consistent in writing in such a way as to make it obvious that he does not take for granted a certain knowledge on the part of his readers. In other words, he's, he's writing to a Gentile, you know, as a Gentile. And there are certain things that are very consistent. Another thing we could go back and show at the very end is that Luke actually writes, this, covers the same material now, with a vocabulary that's 350 words richer than, say, Mark. In other words, there, when, you, when you say, even though Mark's given to detail and all, that when you look at the same body of material and all, you're saying that, that Luke is writing with a vocabulary where he uses 350 more different kinds of words than Mark does. Well, that's a mark of, of education and reading and, and, and learning. And so you can show three very distinct personalities. No, we haven't even got to the point. They, people will recognize that this supplements and complements and all. But then when we do get to the point where they say that there is some contradictions and the apparent contradictions, we're going to see that, that what happens when we look at the two things. Number one, we look at the context. Number two, that we look at the personality of the writer that we have seen developed in these various things here. And then also we take into consideration what we've talked about earlier, and that is methods of writing in antiquity, that they simply did it in a, in a different way that, than we do right now. What you're basically saying is that they had to have been there, they didn't copy, but they say the things, but they would have had to have been there in order for them to coincide. Like, for instance, one writer writes that Jesus sat down and taught the disciples, and another writer says he looked up and taught them. Mm -hmm. That's different, but yeah, obviously he was look, he was sitting down, so he did look up. But they, you know, they would have both had to have been there before they could have. Well, I worked. thought maybe what you were saying that that somebody was having trouble with this. I was going to oh, say, no, man, no, no, this this is the, this part here is the redundant part. Yeah. In other words, where they're hitting exactly. You're the, getting at the, the personalities of the guys. Right. That we can, yeah, and, okay. and what we're showing tonight is that even on the part that they hit the same, that you see individual. In other words, we can go back now at the end and I can show where they're, where they're using a, this so-called Q document, mm -hmm. that they are using a same source at times. But even when they use that same source, they blend it in their material in a little bit different way. And obviously they're not sitting there with, uh, uh, Mark's definitely not sitting there with Matthew in front of him and concerned about that, that it's word for word. And Matthew's definitely not sitting there concerned about Mark or Luke or anybody anybody else. And Luke is definitely not sitting there dependent on just Matthew and Mark, but he's got all the body of information before him. And each, as an individual writer, is, is choosing his own materials and all to, to blend in. And what you're going to wind up with then, if you can show that you have three totally individual accounts, and that these individual accounts perfectly complement one another. And that even, we won't get to this tonight, but there are some areas that, that seem to be obviously contradictory on the surface. But yet, when you can go back and look at these various things and show that, hey, they're, they're not contradictory, then what you wind up with is, is a situation where you can say that these books could not exist in the way they do, except you were dealing with truthful information. It, it just simply could not do it. By the way, the first work that was ever done uh, on the New Testament outside of just you know copying the material itself and all was the Harmony of the Gospels. In, in 150 A.D., the first Harmony of the Gospel was published, and through the centuries, you know, that's uh, there's been any number you know of, of the harmonies of the Gospels, 
and of all, like we mentioned in the introduction a couple of weeks ago, we often mention that the Bible is the most studied book in the world and has been through the years, but you can actually be more specific than that. If you take just the Gospels, forget about the rest of the Bible, the four Gospels are the most studied books in the world. And, and they have been commented on and, and attacked by, by unbeliever and skeptic and defended by believer. They've been more written about uh, and read and translated than any other books in the world. And again, that, that's just interesting in and of itself as to the, the impact that they have made. Okay, now let's see. Uh, Matthew, go to 2735. Mark to 1524. And Luke to 23, 33, and 34. 23, and 33, and 34. Is he making you do all the reading? Mm-hmm. He's got something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see. Matthew. Uh, okay, somebody read Matthew. Matthew. Uh, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Okay, Mark. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. Okay, now look. When they came, when they came to the place called Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing." And now they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Okay, notice again, uh, parallel material. Each, uh, uh, Luke incorporates a number of things there that's not in Mark and Matthew. And then Mark uh, has a couple of things that's not in Matthew. Now, another interesting thing, we don't have it here, uh, uh, but uh, remember the thieves. Uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke all record the thieves. In Matthew's account, we'll get to this when we talk about the things you mentioned about contradiction. In Matthew's account, you have the thieves, plural, railing at Jesus. In Luke's account, you're going to have one thief railing at him, and the other thief confesses him and repents and, and is saved. And so that, um, and yet you, you read that account in Luke, and you can ask the question, well, man, that was an outstanding thing. Why isn't that in Matthew? And why, why isn't that in Mark? Well, that's the kind of thing that we'll talk about when it gets to the, the contradiction, but we'll also see how we can harmonize that and, and, and look at what is there. And then also, even if somebody wanted to holler something about a contradiction, you, you've got, they're talking about a crucifixion, and they each have two themes up there. And, uh, and again, you get to, to who was standing there, and observing, and who's, who's back further, and who's writing an account from several different sources, and also what may be more important to one than, than it is to another. And, and keep in mind, with, with Matthew, you have to always keep in mind that his purpose, and it's just like if, if, uh, if uh, well, I'll give you an example, in the, like in our thing at school, we teach reading and math, and you, you've got your textbook. And, uh, but, like in math, for example, that teacher might be, if you didn't know what she was doing, she's skipping around at various, not just going chapter by chapter, but she's skipping around. That same textbook might be used in another state like Kentucky, and they would go chapter by chapter through it and would think you'd be foolish to skip it around, skip it around. But that's what we do. We skip around in our math book, 
And, and in Kentucky, they'll go chapter by chapter through the same math book, and they might say, well, what, what is the reason for this? But see, our purpose, we have a, a basic skills and, and Stanford test that our kids take at the end of the year. It's mandatory. And so the teachers, since that's our goal to prepare for those tests, we're going to correlate our material with those tests. And so if we have to skip over something to make sure that we teach all that they're going to be tested on, we're going to do it. If they're not taking that same basic skills test in Kentucky, that's no big deal with them, so they're going straight through. Well, in the same way, Matthew's whole entire goal revolves around convincing Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah that you've looked for all, all these years. You see, and, and Luke is convincing this Gentile that this Jesus, is, he's a special person. You know, he's the, he's the son of God, and he's the greatest teacher that's ever lived and all. Uh, John comes along, and, and he wants to give meaning to some things people already believe. He wants to take all the facts they've got, and he wants to give meaning, and he's going to get into big theological discussions. In fact, one of the differences we'll note in John and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the most of the discourses that you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke were given to all of the populace. When you get to John, most of the discourses are given specifically to the 12 apostles. Well, then obviously, you can see Jesus being very factual and, and, and simpler and broader and all in dealing with the populace. And then when the, uh, the uh, disciples, the 12, get him aside and they want to know more details and they want a better understanding, then you can see him going into it in a much deeper way and even even tell them that you know to him that has will be given even more and and that will explain some of the very deep theological the teaching that we actually have in john but the end result of understanding all of this when you through is that it becomes something to much more appreciate that when we're through that you've got four documents that you can honestly show were written at a time put down on paper when people were alive that were involved in all these events, they didn't copy off one another. And they sent these documents out, and they complement and slu they're even full of apparent contradictions. And they complement and supplement one another in such a way that it would be an absolute impossibility, except they were dealing with, with truth itself. Okay, let's see. Uh, let me try to pick out, uh, we'll just get a couple more good ones here for, the, for tonight. Okay, this is a good one here. Uh, this is just Matthew and Mark. Uh, Matthew 20, 2021. Matthew 20, 2021. And let's see, uh, all of you that had Matthew and uh, Luke, I guess go ahead and take that one. And then Mark 10, 35 through 37. Okay, you took up on this one right away. What was the first one? Matthew 20. Uh, Matthew 20, 2021, 20, and uh, Mark 10, 35 through 37. <coughs> okay, somebody read Matthew. And those of you that have gotten Mark, you look at that carefully while they read Matthew. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with their sons, and kneeling down asked to favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She no, said. Okay. No. What is it you want? She, he asked. She said, "Grant 
that one of these two sons of mine be seated at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your kingdom. Okay, now you almost messed that up by throwing the he in there. No he is there, right? On which part now? Uh, the mother of Zebedee, mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. She asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, command that these two sons of mine may set one at the right hand and one at the left in the kingdom. Well, it says kneeling down asked a favor of him, didn't say she, but then it said, what is it you want? He asked. Okay, yeah, him asking her. Right. right. Okay, now notice in uh, Mark's account. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye, what would ye that I do for you? Was it 37 dude? Yeah. Let me throw this away. They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. I don't want that tape heard by anybody. You know, it, it is interesting when you read from that. I mean, we've all was brought up and all, but when you read it in comparison with the NIV or the New American Standard Version, uh, and then we wondered that. why our teenage children just don't love to pick it up and um, read yeah. it. Yeah. That's uh, and why we didn't read it more. So really you should have somebody else read that out of another one to get any meaning out of that. So. Okay, the big thing is I do you to wit. Yeah, cut the tape out now. <laughs> now, look at that. What's the difference? I don't know. <laughs> I never James, understood any of it. James, James and John, John are asking in this yeah. one. Okay. Their mother. So in Matthew, uh, the, the mother of the sons of Debedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And then in Mark, James and John, the sons of Ebony, came forward and said to him, Teacher, we want, you know, what do you want? And they said to him, Grant us. Okay, obviously, we're dealing with exactly the same concept, right? Obviously, Matthew's not trying to, to copy Mark, and Mark's not trying to copy Matthew. In fact, if somebody was trying to avoid a contradiction, in other words, if some redactor got hold of this and said, hey, we've got to make sure they all say the same thing, what this shows is there's no effort to even straighten this out. Nobody has even made an effort to straighten out something that is just glaring. Obviously, nobody had a problem with this. As this went out in the first century, nobody had a problem with it. Now, it's interesting in reading the concerning the, you know, the early church fathers on this and commentators down, down through the years. And also, again, here's where our understanding of how they wrote and recorded things helps us on, on, on this matter. It, according to the way that they would record things, if, if it was the mother that instigated them to do this, and she came up with them and they asked, then Matthew would feel no injustice whatsoever in giving and putting every bit of it in her mouth since she was the instigator of it. On the other hand, if they had talked to her, and, and then as a result of them saying something to her, she went up, and the one was asked, and they stood. Again, the, I'm saying that the writers of antiquity found no problem with that whatsoever. They were concerned about the meaning itself. In other words, obviously, the, the mother, Matthew, knew that the mother 
was, was one that was involved in this too. Mark isn't even bothered with it. And so what we have, most of the commentators would say that, that because of the detail and all, that Matthew would be the more precisely accurate. But then that Mark just simply left out the mother and put it in that way. Couldn't it also be, though, that since Mark is recording what was told to him, maybe it was just told to him that they asked because it was them that wanted it, not necessarily, you know, and just I, left out the fact that the mother actually did the asking. They just wanted this, so they you, assumed you're they saying exactly, That's exactly what they would say, yeah. uh, exactly. That uh, Matthew is an eyewitness, right? and, and he gives it exactly. And Mark, on the other hand, has been given the material, and that point was not was not brought out and so in wording it he put this down well the point is that when you look at all of it you can actually see the mothers involved and to this day you and i may not be absolutely positive which one actually talked to jesus whether it was the sons or the mother you know that actually did the talking we could we could have our belief as to which one but you'd have a hard time being dogmatic with that but yet where's the contradiction the product is still the same. Exactly the same. We've got them wanting to know a certain body of information and the reasoning and all that's involved there. One of us gives us a little more information, but what we see there is an eyewitness as opposed to somebody that is writing from information that is given him, and we definitely see individuality of account. In other words, I'm saying this type of thing, that's one of the so-called contradictions. Uh, Joe, that you mentioned earlier about one of the oh. things we had been looking at the things where nobody has any problem, but we're showing three different personalities. Now we're getting into something that, hey, somebody says this is an obvious contradiction. And so when this professor stands up there and, and he in, in college class, he picks out an example like this. And so these people are not really studied in this matter in detail. And man, that looks, well, hey, that is a contradiction. But if they stop and think, well, first of all, before anybody even tries to figure anything out or know anything about the writing of antiquity, they're talking about exactly the same thing. They're talking about exactly the same thing. And this type of thing in the final analysis becomes very important because this is the type of thing that will demonstrate beyond any doubt whatsoever that nobody was copying, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not sitting down copying off the other. And not only that, there was no one individual that got hold of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and tried to make them coincide or anything like that. In other words, see, that becomes an important thing. What the liberal scholar tried to do with the Old Testament for years and then somewhat here with, with the New and with the, the Synoptic Gospels, that what is called a redactor got hold of these bodies of materials and then worked them over so as to make them harmonious. Well, we can see, obviously, if he did, he didn't do a very good job you know, you, that as, as a result of it. So what is brought forth as a contradiction is something that's very good. Now, can you see, though, how that, that conservative scholars, and, and let's say conservative fundamentalist churches, have done damage in that young people have gone through their churches being taught that, like, you know, the Bible was dropped out of heaven and, and the Holy Spirit dictated every word. And, and then they, of course, become Christians. They, they go to the uh, university with this concept that every word is dictated by the Holy Spirit. And then somebody points out all these various differences and points out something like this. To, to suffice it to say, this would prove to you beyond any doubt that the Holy Spirit didn't dictate every word. It would also prove to you that there is a personality right in Matthew 
and there's a personality mark, mark, and there's a personality right in Luke. Well, if your belief in the truthfulness of the Bible is conditioned upon the Holy Spirit dictating every word, then what happens to the truthfulness of the Bible? You see, it, 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 become, it becomes nothing. But it, it, it becomes nothing only because of your misunderstanding of the, of the spirit of truth and the way the Holy Spirit guided and led these people in the, in the first place. On the other hand, if these people had studied this uh, with, uh, in, in church, where you've got people who believe it and who are looking at it in the way that we are, and have looked at this information, the different personalities, then when that professor gets up there, he don't even phrase them. They actually can come back and say, hey, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If, if, you can't say that these people are all copying off one another, at the same time they're contradicting one or the other, you know, that you, that you can have. If, you, if you're going to say they copy, then I can show the individuality. If you're going to say that they contradicted, then you're going to have to give up your concept of the copying, and then we'll go about and, and show, and look at these things that you're, they're calling contradiction, but you can't have both of them. That's what they've tried to have. They've tried to have them contradicting, they've tried to have them copying all at the same time, and they tried to have a redactor putting it all together. Well, you can't have all three of those at once. And so a conservative scholar will bring that out real quick. He'll say, you can't have all three. Grab either one you want. You know, you, you grab the contradiction, we'll deal with that. You grab the copying, and we'll deal with that. But you just simply can't have both, or you grab the redactor, and we'll deal with him. But you can't have all three of those. And so that what happens is these kinds of discussions have not gone on in the Bible classes now. Number one, a lot of preachers are not studying the way they should. But number two, those that have come in contact with it, rather than get it out in the open and deal with it, and, and do the studies necessary, it's like, well, we may confuse people, you know, and some of these people may not understand it. Well, and if you're teaching what some of them teach about the King James Bible and, and inspiration and all, that flies right in the face. But then in the process, a lot of people have concepts put in their mind that just simply doesn't accurately represent this, and you set them up for a big letdown up there. It's just like on the uh, second coming of Christ. If, if you believe that real strongly, and you've been taught those things, and then you get in a college class and you're taking a course in New Testament criticism and all. And this guy goes through there and he says, hey, you have to be, if you're going to be honest with the material, you're going to have to admit that Jesus said he was coming back in his lifetime. And, and, and all the disciples believed in Paul and every one of them. Now you're just going to have to admit that to be honest. And then what happens? All of these, you mean that there's no end of the world, there's no judgment, there's no second coming of Christ, and you're, you're, all these sermons and songs and everything just collapse right there. But the problem's not here. The, the problem is the teaching that went on before you got to that point. Okay, let's go ahead and call it for tonight. And uh, what we'll do next week, we'll take out, take some of these uh, examples like the last one we looked at, of the so-called contradictions and all, and then we'll, after we give several of them, we'll try to tie this together and we'll show some examples of where they did exactly copy word for word and how we can see this new document that we talked about. And then we're going to go from that on into looking at uh, John's Gospel and how completely and totally different it is than this. And yet, on the other hand, how it perfectly supplements and complements. And then we'll also bring in some, uh, some statements from the early uh, writers of the church fathers where they quote the teaching of Jesus
but obviously are not quoting from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and yet are quoting exactly the, the same material. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that somewhat too. You're saying you don't believe as a key doctor. Oh yeah. I, I believe that. I believe definitely that uh, there were different documents. Uh, that, in other words, before anybody sat down and compiled the book in the way that we have it, there were shorter things uh, going around. And, uh, and then there were a number of people dry, drawing off of some of this. And who the exact author was of that Q document <coughs> may have been Peter, you see. But they all never discovered the Q document. The only through the source, in other words, only in the sense, see, we've got all kinds of material that you don't have. Only in the sense that when, when you can see, like we've shown so far, the personality of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they obviously don't cover the same things with exactly the same words or three different personalities. Well, then we can come and show some things where it is absolute, absolutely word for word in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, they just have taken it. Obviously, they're copying from the same source. How about the uh, <coughs> so-called Gospel of Thomas? Okay, we'll look at that. I've, I've read the Gospel of Thomas, and we'll get, uh, we'll get uh, the, at the end, we'll take... Uh, some of these uh, various gospels. In fact, there's books out now claiming you know the footing that they stand on, and we'll get some examples. In fact, it makes a very interesting comparison to take some statements from the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, let, let me give you one that comes to my mind because it just it just stood out. It was so glaring. In, in the let me say now in the Gospel of uh, Thomas, uh, they were taught they were considering salvation. And in order to be saved, everybody had to become a male. And, and there were some very derogatory statements about the female. And that the only way she could be saved was to become a male. And they had this worked out in some spiritual sense. What you see there in the Gospel of Thomas is, see, in, the, in those early years, in that part, at that time in history, there, there was tremendous bias against the female. That she was nothing but a servant, a, a slave. Her witness in court was like a child. It, it didn't stand on the same part with the man. And, and she was just owned by the man. Well, the beautiful thing about the, the Bible and the Gospels is how it stands up. In other words, you find a woman, here's Jesus from that background, but he's dealing with a woman as equal to a man. And, and he's, uh, that we find him dealing with them. On the one hand, they've got the relationship, the man and the woman, but he has his as much feeling for the woman as he did the man, and just like he shocked them when he said that the man didn't have the right to put away his wife at will, as one man, one woman, until death did him part. When he walked up and talked to the Samaritan woman, see, it wasn't just that she was a Samaritan, the Jew would not have walked up and talked to a woman like that in public. And the times that he did that, and uh, that uh, he, he shocked as much there as when he dealt with, you know, sinners in the way that did. Well, when we get into the Gospel of Thomas and some of these others, we're going to see these same biases towards the female that they had in that day that are taught is the truth of God. And another thing we'll see is that, for the most part, those so-called Gospels never deal with exactly the same material that's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What they do is they fill in gaps. Like, for example, when Je what happened between, when Jesus, between 12 and 30, and as a child, well, then we've got Jesus doing things like turning clay pigeons into live pigeons. Uh, we've got Jesus uh, getting aggravated at another child and doing 
something, you know, of a, of a miraculous nature and, and kind of showing out and things like that. Well, that there is such a contrast that it always does is help you to appreciate, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Bruce, FF Bruce indicates that, that the jury may, may still be out on, on the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, you have, what you can show in Thomas is that you can have, you've got some points of, of, of truth where he, this document, like maybe say the Q document, that, that this person is quoted from, and you can see that. But any material that is unique to Thomas is of the nature that we've talked about. He said that the early church fathers quoted from Thomas. Now, all right, now what he gives you there, they quoted from, remember what I said earlier, that you can show where they're, they're quoting the same materials in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but yet from a different document. They, you can show where they quote from a document that's the same as Thomas is drawing from. And keep in mind, this Gospel of Thomas, whatever the reasons for writing it and, and the fiction may be involved, obviously, he's going to, just like a false teacher today, quotes the Bible. You see, he's still quoting, uh, whether it's Jim and Tammy or, or whoever it is, they're quoting the Bible. Well, what Bruce is talking about is that he obviously is quoting from a recognized source. And we're talking about a document that is circulated that they all recognize in those early church fathers. And you can show where Ignatius and Polycarp and some of these people and see, from all evidence, Ignatius and Polycarp, one neither, neither had access to the information that the other wrote. And yet they quote some sources that are exactly the same and yet not in the Gospels. And yet give it the same material. Well, you find in the Gospel of Thomas, him doing the same thing. But I'm saying that on that material that is unique to Thomas, then we, we find something completely different. And by the way, it, it, it shows again that when you get to material that is unique to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that means it's not in any of the other three. Then it becomes. Uh, very difficult to explain how they can take this unique material and still have the same personality, saying the same things that you would expect him to say based on what you've already heard, as opposed to these uh, go other Gospels who, when they have Jesus dealing with material that is unique to them, have a completely different personality, almost a frivolous type of personality.